The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. We're going to continue the second half of the uh, plenary session 1A, where we're focusing on Tibetan medicine's place in integrative and whole systems medical practices. I think we had a very successful first phase uh, before the lunch break. And now we have three more talks on this topic. The first one, there he is, this is by uh, Dr. Alejo Chao, who is an assistant professor within the Integrative Medicine Program at the University of Texas at, at uh, Anderson Cancer Center. And he'll be speaking on Tibetan mind-body practices from the Himalayas to the clinic. So fabulous title. Looking forward to hearing your talk. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Um, um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you, uh, Yang Bongyal, Siena, Vinsan, for inviting me. Um, and uh, as uh, Dr. Mill said, I'm in integrative medicine, so hopefully we'll get to that whole person aspect. So what I'd like to first is give thanks to all the people that are uh, are part of our team as we put together the trials that I'll mention today, which again, we have some whole system trials, but today I'm going to speak specifically on mind-body practices from the Tibetan tradition and how we brought them into integrative medicine. And of course, my first big thanks is to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who thanks to him, I actually got into Tibetan medicine, and I remember in the first visit to Latin America when he told me that Tibetan medicine is a great way to introduce in a nonviolent way what Dharma is. I just come from, <clears throat> sorry, from the cremation of my teacher, Mandri Trizin, and I want to honor him from all I learned in, in the practices. And also my teachers, Yongsin um, Tenzin Namdak and Tenzin Wanjar Rinpoche, who have been really crucial in keeping me in line as we do these um, trials. And, and really, uh, particularly Tenzin Wanjar Rinpoche has been an advisor to all these research projects. And as Dr. Mill said, there was a really focus in the 70s uh, before the whole person uh, idea started coming back on, on really a reductionist biomedicine until this article of George Engel uh, that actually got published in Science in 1977, and he was promoting more this biopsychosocial model, although as uh, Paul will like, I added psychospiritual. Um, and, um, and really it's an important part of the movement of how uh, some of these aspects have started to being incorporated and not just talking about physical health. And the way that we do it at our Integrative Medicine Center at MD Anderson is that we have uh, this graph where you have the physical, the social, and the mind-body. And again, I really want to emphasize that in the mind-body component, that spiritual aspect is there, and um, I'll mention it also how we measure it as well. Uh, again, following uh, Paul, uh, we do have, we are also part of the Consortium uh, for Integrative Medicine and Health, 
And this is, even though maybe not fully there yet, the idea of really practicing a medicine that reaffirms the relationship between the practitioner and the patient, that really focuses on the whole person, and it's informed by evidence. And this part is really important for us, as well as to make uh, use of all the appropriate uh, therapeutic approaches, providers, and disciplines to achieve optimal health and healing. Now, NCAM, now NCHI, um, has this definition about mind-body practices, which is there are a variety of techniques designed to enhance the mind's capacity to affect bodily functions and system. And even though we call them mind-body, in the Tibetan traditions, we always talk about them as mind-energy body, mind-speech body, and particularly in the mind-body practices, I would say mind-breath body. And as we know, there's been a lot of, uh, in a way, popular media has been taken by uh, this mind-body, by the science of meditation, the science of yoga, and you might recognize John Kabat-Zinn and, in a way, that mindful revolution. And I was just sharing with Cliff yesterday that the same image of this mindful revolution yesterday came up in a time special issue on just on mindfulness. So... Um, it's, it's something that we see on, uh, we, we keep on seeing this aspect of mindfulness. And it's also as important as it is and its penetration that it had in the area of complementary and integrative medicine. It's just one part of, of the mind-body practices. And so I want to emphasize that. And there's been a lot of importance in this area of the dialogue. And this is an early photo. You see Francisco Varela there with his son as the Dalai Lama, Alex Burson in the back. So <clears throat> Buddhologist, uh, scientist, and his son as the Dalai Lama. This is a meeting in his living room in Dharamsala. But from this, the whole Mind and Life Institute came to be. And now the meetings are thousands of people uh, that meet in, in different areas uh, in the U.S. and in Europe. In terms of Tibetan mind-body practices and research, I want to focus first on probably the earliest research was done by Herbert Benson, who is in, um, actually here in the mind-body uh, um, center in Harvard. And uh, he was interested first in what he coined the relaxation response, but then really became interested in this practice in Tibetan, the Tumo practice, or psychic heat. And here you can see a yogi uh, illustrated in the Lulakang um, doing this practice. And uh, his research, uh, um, <clears throat> um, Benson's research, was published actually in Science in 1982, showing that through these mind-body practices, one can actually increase the heat. So it was not just a question of psychic heat, but actually the, um, there was a, uh, the heat in the body was uh, elevated by these meditation and breathing practices. So in the late 90s, I joined a team of researchers. And now my background, as um, Dr. Janet Giazzo was saying hers, my background is also in religious studies. So my PhD is in Tibetan studies and really um, also a practitioner of these mind-body practices. And after my uh, dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer, I started volunteering 
in a center, the, the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And as I started volunteering, then I joined Dr. Lorenzo Cohen, who asked me, what about doing research? And so we started by doing randomized control trials of Tsalung Trungkor, or what we now call Tibetan yoga, uh, first with a lymphoma population and then uh, breast cancer. And really, um, part of my dissertation, actually, was this uh, research on these Tibetan mind-body practices that Salung Trungkor, particularly uh, from the Shangshi Ninju, from uh, Sharsat uh, Sashi Jialsen's commentary. And in a way, we can think of Tsalung Trungkor, Tsa being the subtle channels, Lung being this prana, chi, a vital breath, and Trungkor, these movements that sometimes are called magical movements where kind of the body becomes like the machine. Sometimes, as we see outside, there's a booth uh, of the Dzogchen community. Sometimes they call this Yantra Yoga. Uh, and uh, in a way, it's kind of the yogas of body, breath, and mind, as I was saying, or just simply Tibetan yoga. The other text that we draw upon is the Maju, or the Mother Tantra. And it's interesting how in here, the mind is the rider, and the breath is this wild horse that is blind. And so, as wild as it is in terms of helping us, kind of nurturing in the inhalation, and cleansing in the exhalation, by being blind, it needs a rider. And so, that's the mind. And the container is the machine, is the body. We also, uh, this uh, Tsalung practices from the Mother Tantra focus on the five lung. And so um, each of the movements that are part of the system emphasize working with one of the five lung and therefore balancing our whole system. And they focus on kind of those arrows there are focusing on the chakras, on the centers, uh, the lines are the channels, whether they are really there or not, we'll uh, see, we'll discuss more with Janet. So we designed a seven-week program, and the reason why we designed a seven-week program was because I was trying to see how much does it take me to teach what I wanted to teach these patients. These are, as I said, these are people with lymphoma, and we wanted to bring this Tsalung and Trungkor for their um, to help them in different aspects of their well-being. And so what we did, we did a randomized controlled trial, and it was Tibetan yoga versus standard of care. This is what we used in terms of the protocol. Uh, we had assessments uh, after the uh, kind of baseline, and then one week, one month, and six months. And we published the results in 2004 in Cancer Journal, and the main outcome was sleep. Sleep quality, sleep quantity, sleep latency, so the moment you want to, you go to sleep until you actually fall asleep, and with less sleep medicine. And it got a lot of attention, and then we did another one, a similar uh, pilot study with a woman with breast cancer, and what we found there is that those that were uh, doing under chemotherapy got more benefit than those under radiation. And so we applied for an R01 for a large uh, grant from NCI, from the National Cancer Institute, and we received it in 2006. We were awarded the grant, and we uh, investigated the effects of Tibetan yoga and fatigue, which were uh, the other outcome, and sleep in women with breast cancer. 
And because uh, now that we had some more money, uh, we were able to include another arm. So it was not just standard of care, but we also had another kind of active component. And the active component was exercise. There's a lot of literature, literature showing the benefits of exercise. And so we decided to do, to randomize the, um, the, peop, the woman with breast cancer into these three arms. And what we did, mostly we reduced it to four sessions, but that decision was made because the uh, chemotherapy treatment at that time changed from being once a week to every three weeks, at least for the people that we, were, that we were working with. And so we decided that if we did seven sessions every three weeks, it would take 21 weeks. It was too long. And so we did four sessions of an hour and a half each. So trying to maintain the time with the patient um, and the amount of time to teach what we wanted to teach. And always I leave a session at the end where there is no kind of more teaching, but more of a wrap-up and understanding. The other thing that we did in this trial is that we did booster sessions, because we noticed that one thing um, that we noticed in our previous study is that the results were up while they were practicing, but they stopped practicing and the results went down. Uh, so if you stop taking your medicine, the, result, the effects are not there. And so how can we support them? And so we did booster sessions. Some were by them coming to the hospital, some were by phone, but really trying to help them keep up their practice. The other thing that we included here is, again, this area of the subtle body and really talking about the channels, the lung, and the subtle aspects of the mind. And so we included practices that included the, the uh, channels, such as the nine breathings, which really focus in letting go of anger, of attachment, and of confusion, the three uh, main poisons, uh, both in Tibetan Dharma as well as in medicine, and really the incorporation of the channels. So we had around uh, 300 uh, women with breast cancer randomized. And then uh, we actually, uh, two weeks ago, we just published again in Cancer Journal um, this uh, randomized trial of Tibetan yoga in patients with breast cancer undergoing chemotherapy. And the main result really here was dose. And what we found is that patients that were practicing two and a, kind of more than two times a week those effects of sleep that we had found were there. If you were practicing less than two times, then they're not there. So it really pushes the idea of practice that for those of you who are practitioner, it probably does not surprise you. Now, we also wanted to go into what's happening in the mind, uh, particularly in the brain, I should say. And, and this is also because the president of our institution was saying, I understand that these practices actually change behaviorally. What about the brain? So we looked at who was doing uh, um, this kind of research. And, of course, Richie Davidson, you see here on the left with Mathieu Ricard on the right with all the um, electrodes on his head. And one of the things I want to emphasize about Mathieu, I think, that really, for me, changed the way this kind of research is done, that he was both a researcher, uh, being a PhD in biology from the Pasteur Institute, so very appropriate in the street that we are now, um, but also um, he's also was one of the subjects. And so... Um, this is, I think, an important aspect of the kind of research that we're doing and really bringing the meditators as part of the research team. 
And of course, National Geographic was interested too in what's in your mind. And, um, and some of the articles that came of, of, of Mind and Life and their research was this area of alterations in brain and immune function. This you could see Richie Davidson and John Kabat-Zinn. This was with mindfulness uh, meditation. And then Sarah Lazar here in Harvard showing that uh, actually the meditation can increase the, the brain gray matter. So it's like going to the gym, right? You uh, pump your muscles. When you go into the meditation cushion, you pump your brain. And and so interesting things that would show that in this area, there's, there can be a lot of benefits with meditation. In our area in cancer, one of the things that we know is that there's this chemo brain, what they call chemo brain or chemo fog, which is really um, um, deterioration in some of your cognitive capacity due to chemotherapy. And so we decided to uh, do a randomized trial uh, using something that would could help that, and we decided to use sounds. And these are Tibetan sounds um, from this um, from Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche's. Uh, actually, comes from the uh, from the Pao Dronga uh, tradition. Uh, there are five kind of warrior syllables that Rinpoche put into this into this book called Tibetan Sound Healing. And so again, we used a woman with breast cancer that after having gone through chemotherapy expressed that they had this chemo brain. And so uh, we, we taught them this uh, three sounds, the three syllables, the ah, om, and hung, as it, they're expressed in this text. Uh, this is part of the burn tradition. And, um, and what we found is that there were changes in the working memory as well as in the speed executive function. So TSM there, it's the Tibetan sound meditation. WL is weightless control. So that means that the standard of care group, after they finished um, the six months of uh, um, um, trial, uh, then they were able to take, to take the actual, if they were in the control group, they were able to come into the intervention group. And then the, also the perceived cognitive uh, capacity uh, was uh, improved in the TSM. Then the other aspects that we find is both a reduction in the, um, sorry, increase in the mental, uh, mental symptoms, but also, as uh, Paul was saying, in the spirituality, and we use the factors P. Uh, the other aspect that was uh, reduced and uh, that was being a benefit is intrusive thoughts as well as depressive symptoms. And um, so we published that in Psych Oncology in 2013. So finally, the social aspect. How do we emphasize the social aspect? And thanks to another colleague, Catherine Milbury, a social anthropologist, um, sorry, a social psych a psychologist, she was interested in diets and really in thinking about connection, not just about kind of the meditative connection, but really the connection of, uh, of, of patient and caregiver. And so we thought, what about doing a trial that supports both the health, not just of the support of the caregiver with the patient, but really the the caregiver's health as well, because the literature shows that they are in a lot of distress as well. And in this one, we used, um, we did it with uh, lung cancer patients and their caregiver, and this was uh, just a one-arm trial. 
And what we found is that the patients that uh, they always uh, had to do it together. So what we asked them to do is not only they came to the sessions together, um, we taught them meditation and salung, these uh, mind-body practices. Specifically, we taught them just two of them related more to the area of the chest and the lung, so pervasive breath and life force breath. And what we asked them is to do them together. And what we saw as instructors is that, you know, we always instruct by seeing them, but then we asked them to face each other. And when they faced each other, you could see that one would extend the hand to each other or maybe the toes. And so that was another aspect that was important. But in terms of some of the results, and TYC is Tibetan yoga for couples, in the patient side, there was a reduction in the depressive symptoms, in the sleep um, uh, disturbances, in the fatigue and in the anxiety, an increase in the spirituality and in benefit finding. And in the Caregivers similar, although in the spirituality there was a small reduction, and we don't know exactly uh, why, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll explore more in, in the next trial. Um, and all these were actually uh, clinical significant. So um, we, I started a clinic, meaning that I see patients one-on-one besides the group classes. And what we found is that, um, as you can see, just in one session, we are able to clinically reduce anxiety, fatigue, um, distress, well-being, improved well-being, um, sleep, memory, and pain. So these are just, again, uh, just showing that we are going into the right direction by applying uh, meditation in the context of a cancer patient. So what I want to say, it's like in a way, sometimes I say from the Himalayas to the clinic or from the caves to the clinic. So you don't have to be in a monastery or the cave. The, you know, integrative medicine centers have these practices. On the left, you have uh, Dr. Lopez, who is our uh, medical center director, who really emphasizes this aspect of mind-body modalities recommended as part of the multidisciplinary approach to reduce things that we find in evidence. So uh, reduce anxiety, mood disturbance, chronic pain, improved quality of life. We have groups and individual sessions. And interesting enough, now the faculty and staff are saying, what about us? Even though we don't have cancer, what about our distress. So we also have resources. This is a website that it's free. Um, you can have things such as our newsletter, in this one, Meditation Tools to Improve Your Life. These are the classes that we do. I started, um, as I said, almost 20 years ago, uh, doing a class that was called Connecting with Your Heart. And as we do research, we bring it back to the clinic. So what we learn in the research, we do it with the breath. We have a class on breath, one with the sounds, one with the movements. And now we incorporated one called Meditation in Daily Life. So it's meditation and tea, meditation and nature, meditation and writing, meditation and art. That page, as I said, it's free. It has audios and videos, both in English and in Spanish. These are all free resources. Um, and uh, we're doing an app with Dr. Lopez um, that the idea is to uh, have this, uh, that the app itself will be able to uh, um, um, measure different aspects, particularly we're working on anxiety, uh, but let's see different aspects. And at this point, it's just a research uh, tool, but maybe eventually will be more of a clinical tool. So with that, thank you very much. And that photo is of Mathieu Ricard, but thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Alejandro. That, that was really excellent. And what I particularly like is that you're, you're taking the findings from your research program 
and you're directly translating that into the clinics there and providing it as more routine or part of therapy that's available to them to transform their lives and well-being. So thank you for, for that and your work. Moving on for this particular session, our next speaker is Mona Schremp, who is a, a medical anthropologist, and she's currently an independent scholar at Humboldt, Humboldt University in Berlin. And she'll be speaking about Tibetan pills for modern ills, styles of prescribing Tibetan medicine in Europe. Thank you, and thank you for being here. Hello, everybody. Thank you, first of all, to the organizers, to this amazing event, for this amazing event and how you all did this from different parts of the world. It's really fantastic. Thank you again also to Jigmi Pünzogla for uh, organizing and making this happen. Um, I'm very happy also that I could uh, finally attend um, this wonderful annual occasion. The last two times I couldn't come, so... Um, Yes, I will present uh, one part of my ethnographic multiple-sided uh, research that I've done from 2012 to 2015 at uh, the University of Westminster at a group that's called East Medicine Research Group led by Volker Scheidt, who is a specialist in TCM, or better said, Chinese medicine, both historical and medical anthropology um, are his field, and um, I was focusing on uh, transnational Tibetan medicine, be meaning Tibetan medicine as it is practiced in present-day China in a Tibetan-populated area that is called Amdo among Tibetans and known as Qinghai province in uh, the Chinese province of Qinghai, and also in Europe, uh, in particular in Switzerland and in Germany. And, um, of course, as you can imagine, um, this is a vast field. It's a big stretch for an anthropologist to cover. So I was focusing on formulas, Tibetan formulas, and very commonly prescribed and used formulas that I could also find as pharmaceuticals mass-produced in Switzerland by the only or sole pharmaceutical company of Tibetan medicines in Europe called the Padma AG or Padma Inc. Um, because I simply needed some comparative level of, uh, of uh, parameters uh, that were not in, uh, primarily already reduced to a particular disease entity. So I was trying to avoid the pitfall, what I see as a pitfall anyway, in a certain sense, that most clinical trials are based upon uh, the biomedically fixed and defined idea of disease, um, whereby all the other imbalances that we already heard about, that Tibetan medicine has very subtle uh, possibilities of detecting imbalances that are so much vaster and so much more complex than the simplified, our in that sense simplified idea of a disease, uh, could avoid. So um, I will just shortly introduce you to Tibetan medicine in Europe. Um, it is not easy to do research in Europe on Tibetan medicine except for on pharmaceuticals and clinical trials that have been done on Tibetan pharmaceuticals as produced by Padma. 
simply for the unfortunate reason that Tibetan medicine as a medical system is not acknowledged or officially recognized in terms of public health, in terms of uh, Asian medicines, as is, for example, TCM, even though, you know, that of course also only started as a, as a therapeutic method, as acupuncture, and then was enlarged into phytotherapy. Uh, but nevertheless, this is a system that is integrated even in our public health systems or in many public health systems in Europe. Uh, but Tibetan medicine is still a sort of marginal phenomenon. And also in terms of practitioners, amount of practitioners, it's very difficult to actually say how many Tibetan medical practitioners there are in Europe. We do have, however, um, since at least 30, 40 years now, established clinics, very few, maybe a handful, maybe 10 um, of practitioners who came uh, via India as exiled Tibetans and were able to establish some of these clinics. Uh, we do have schools of Tibetan medicine, also established ma mainly by Tibetan uh, physicians from India. Um, but otherwise, um, there's not much there except Padma Age. So that's what I will start with uh, right now. Um, so Padma Age is a um, um, very interesting case study, I would say, let alone being the only one in this case. Um, uh, it has been basically an interesting and very fortunate encounter that led to the foundation of Padma Age, uh, just to uh, quickly show you that there were two strands of uh, waves, if you want, or introduction, introductory pathways that came from Tibet. Um, one in the middle of the 19th century, or actually even earlier, already from Tibet, via Tibetan Buddhism, to Mongolia and Boyatia and other countries like Kalmykia, um, in terms of establishments of monasteries and as part of the monastic curriculum, also Tibetan medicine. But this was a rather small portion, one could say, in those countries. But nevertheless, it also was introduced. And then students of these monasteries and monks came to Tibet to study Tibetan medicine and then went back again and uh, distributed and promulgated uh, Tibetan medicine. But in the middle of the 19th century, we have an interesting movement of one particular family physician lineage, the Badmayevs, who traveled from uh, Boyatia towards St. Petersburg. Um, of course, Boyatia at the time was already part of the big Tsarist uh, Russia. And um, it was said that Badmayev was able to treat, um, I think it was syphilis or some kind of uh, soldier's typical soldier disease uh, successfully and the Tsar of Russia invited him to come to St. Petersburg and uh, open up a clinic of Tibetan medicine and this is basically how it all started in Europe, if you want, uh, in the eastern part of Europe in St. Petersburg and then... Um, some decades later, actually almost a century later then, uh, by coincidence, one of the um, Badmaya family members um, met with a Swiss pharmacist, Karl Lutz, um, who was very interested in Tibetan medicine and in, also in Badmaya's translation of the Gyushi, the Four Tantras, and uh, handed over recipes, Buyat recipes of Tibetan medicine to the Swiss pharmacist. And this is how a collaboration began in Switzerland in um, 
in the 19, uh, early 1960s until in 1969, Carlutz was able to found um, the one and only pharmaceutical company for Tibetan medicine. And um, this is really uh, quite amazing if you think of it, but op fortunately in those days it was possible to um, get, uh, regist uh, get medicines compound, we're talking about compound medicines, not active ingredients of single uh, herbs, but complex compound herbal medicines that became, um, of which there are, I think today, Padma produces about 12 different types of medicines. I say medicines, but I actually mean most of them are supplements, dietary supplements, because it's a definitional issue and a registration issue, of course, a legal issue, what you can call medicine or what not. But nevertheless, there are several among them, two or three, that have even reached uh, the status of a medicine by the Swiss uh, agencies. So that is also quite an exceptional uh, case, even for generally Asian medicine altogether. I think Padma, as far as I know, is the only company that produces an Asian medicine compound in Europe, as far as I know. But maybe there's some new development, but anyway. Uh, so it is quite um, amazing how this was done. Of course, a lot of policies. So there's, of course, always much more to say, but uh, the, there's a European directive about herbal medicines um, that, has to, uh, that was amended and then uh, was um, uh, basically giving the chance also for Padma medicines to be registered. On one hand, on the other, um, the, this amendment means that um, if there's a medicine that has been practiced and seen as efficacious and safe in traditional use for 30 years, it um, uh, can be registered, um, but it also means it also needs at least 15 years of use within Europe already. Uh, so that it can be registered. And of course, the last part of 15 years of use in Europe is only something at the moment that Padma can actually fulfill because most medicines produced in terms of Tibetan medicine are produced outside in Asia and don't have the chance at the moment to enter the EU. So this is a, a big, big firewall that um, um, hopefully will be changed over time because things do change, but only through lobbying and a lot of work. Um, so in any case, um, yes, I think, um, so one of the reasons, of course, this has an impact on Tibetan medical practice, as you can imagine. Um, there's hardly any formulas available, in fact, at least not officially. Uh, there are some itinerant visiting, visiting physicians who also have their own medicines or can order them via mail and all kinds of other networks. Um, so, yes, um, it is difficult to practice Tibetan medicine on one hand. On the other, um, as we have heard, diet and behavior, um, pulse diagnosis, all these uh, important first steps can be done and are done, including external therapies. Of course, uh, there is a kind of uh, relationship between uh, the lack of medicines and the emphasis on issues like mind-body medicine. I think this is also the case here in the States, um, uh, which is in, on one hand really fortunate and, and wonderful, but on the other it's also um, only a part of Tibetan medicine that 
in Asia is actually less practiced and I think in the West much more emphasized as part of the, this reaction on uh, the problem of having access to medicines. At least that's how I see it. Um, but this shouldn't be... Um, I mean, this this is fantastic on one hand because it gives us all these possibilities and of explorations and clinic, including clinical trials, as we've just heard from Alejandro. But on the other hand, we're really lacking uh, data and uh, reliable RCTs on Tibetan formulas, and there's only few done in Asia itself. Um, that are usually not recognized, as far as I know, mostly are not recognized uh, in Europe or in the West. Um, so we have this kind of lopsided situation or imbalance, if you want, um, of Tibetan medical um, practice as an overall system. But nevertheless, um, it is uh, practiced and the interest is increasing. And uh, so... Just to give you, I don't need to tell you about this. Everybody's aware of it in the times we are living in. Um, we're all pretty much stressed, I would say. This is a very popular saying. Oh, my God, I'm so stressed every day. Um, I have to remind myself, okay, I have to breathe deep in, deep out, especially when I give a talk, all these kind of things. Very important. Um, but uh, it's easy to do that um, if it's just a talk. It's much more difficult if it's really something ongoing, chronic, and leading to disease, which we know is a big trigger. Stress is a big trigger, and we're all um, affected by it in one way or another. Um, so um, I obviously don't have time to go into this, however, incredibly intriguing and very, very complex topic of wind imbalances or lung imbalances. We heard a little bit already before, but uh, if you're interested in this, wind and mind and spirit um, is all, and body and mind is, of course, all the same. It's You cannot separate the two. We do that as Western um, enlightened uh, people, enlightened, so to speak, in terms of enlightenment, in terms of the separation between body and mind. Um, but Tibetan medicine really does not do that. We have these three principles of lung, tripa, and pekin, of wind, um, bile, and phlegm. And wind itself is a very, probably the most complex of these three energies or bodily um, yeah, cos cosmic principles that are in the end uh, consisting out of the five elements. Um, so uh, nevertheless, wind is the um, basis, many say, of all disorders. The Gyushi actually say that. The wind imbalance is the basis of all uh, disorders. This is where it starts. So stress and wind uh, in terms of movement, wind is the movement element. Uh, you can imagine too much talking, too much doing, too much thinking uh, deprives you of sleep, of concentration and all these kind of things. There's lots of rather easy translations if you want or simplified translations that are however correlations that are more immediate than in many other cases when we look at Tibetan medicine and uh, concepts in, in our Western understanding. So there in particular three types of winds among five um, that I will look at and uh, just shortly obviously. 
there's the life holding wind or the Sokzin Lung that is situated in the crown or in the brain center. It has a lot to do with swallowing, breathing, tears, sneezing, belching. So it's the whole um, senses, the sensory system, but it's also directly connected with the nervous system and brain memory. So this just shows you a completely different idea about from as if from our point of view and as an anthropologist of course i have to constantly translate things not just from one language into another but also from different systems into another trying to be careful about how i translate and in particular how others translate these issues five minutes okay thank you um Then there are two more, uh, the pervasive wind and the fire accompanying wind. So the fire accompanying wind is situated in the stomach. It has to do with digestive heat in particular. It basically maintains, um, separates the, nu the nutrients and the wastes. And um, so, and the other one is the heart in, in the heart, situated in the heart, basically, the pervasive wind, um, and is uh, about capacity of movement and thinking. So, how do we make sense of this? Well, in CAM or um, complementary alternative medicine, uh, people have tried, and in fact, there's one uh, now academy called Paramed in Switzerland that actually offers Tibetan a, a, a naturopath degree in Tibetan medicine um, for the very first time. I think they only started last year, um, where um, officially uh, registered then. Uh, practitioners can study Tibetan medicine and can practice it. And uh, the person, the director who's running this, Mr. Feldhaus, he, um, uh, this is a chart that he basically um, put up in order to, un to, to explain the different combinations and um, influences that what we already heard about um, uh, that wind is having on our body and once it is imbalanced this concerns very first of all the digestion what we already heard about the gut is really the basis of all health but also of all disease then we have uh, the wind element that also gets um, into um, emotions into nerves into sleep issues and so on and so on so um, this is uh, the way uh, that Padma is um, the Padma AG has developed two different types of medicines one is called Padma Digestine based on Sendu 5 and the other one is uh, based on Padma Nerves formula um, the Single ingredients, I cannot go into detail. I can only tell you that all of the, most of them are warming, have a warming and um, oily quality, meaning that wind, which is rough and light and cold, is counterbalanced because this is the typical system of Tibetan medicine. Of course, the compounding of a formula is much more complex um, and is, is a sort of particular art form, if you want, that Tibetan medicine has that is little studied until today. Padma usually talks about synergistic um, multi-compound effects with multi-target kind of uh, effects for different types of diseases. And it's, in fact, also used like that. 
So people with burnout, for example, at Paramed Academy are prescribed um, the Padma Nurse formula that increases sleep and concentration and betters issues of mood, uh, together with uh, Sendu 5, this digestive formula that has uh, things like pomegranate and uh, um, you know, warming, other warming uh, ingredients in order to rebalance the system that is out of order through stress or um, increased than through uh, burnout. Um, it was unfortunately in my research not possible to do um, research with patients of Padma uh, taking products from Padma. This is not only because I'm only one person and you'd need a whole group of people, um, but basically this would be a research that would be for me very interesting to do is to look at um, how um, at having at least two or three different types of practitioners, a biomedical practitioner, a CAM practitioner, a Tibetan medical doctor in particular, who takes pulse, uh, through pulse diagnosis, um, defines a type of imbalance and then compares that with uh, the disease category that the other doctors come up with and then give different prescriptions, find a kind of a comparative parameter in order of outcome and then see what is uh, more efficient because that is at least the question that I'm personally interested in. Is it really possible to reduce uh, a Tibetan formula and all its power and effectiveness to a, to a Western disease that you kind of look at? As in the case, in, in this case, it was, tri it, it was a trial that was done in India, but it turned out they could not pin down a particular disease, and um, it just didn't work that way. And uh, and I also think this is this is a bit too short-sighted. So basically, um, the question is, how do we generate um, a really worthwhile, encompassing whole systems research uh, clinical trials with Tibetan medicine uh, by including, in particular, the the subtleties of pulse diagnosis and the knowledge of the different principles of Tibetan medicine um, on, on the individual body with uh, the Western medical approach of um, fixed disease categories that you have to come up with usually at least in terms of production of pharmaceuticals, this is the issue here, um, to, to integrate it in a very useful way. And I think here I have to stop. Um, I try to convey something that's much more complex, but hopefully there's some time for questions at some stage. And if not, please come to me and ask me later. Thank you. Thank you, Mona. Thank you, Mona. That was excellent historical perspective on the journey of Tibetan medicine through Europe and its current status. And you mentioned there are a couple of clinical trials that maybe haven't made its way over here, at least to the States. I'd love to learn more about if you can share them with me. Thank you. Okay, our next speaker is Tatiana Chukhaiva. I'm sorry. Thank you. An assistant professor at Tufts University in the Department of Anthropology. And she'll be speaking on the topic of integrative medicine for disintegrated bodies, SOA Rigpa, and the politics of uh, therapeutic multiplicity in Russia. So, the aim of this paper is to explore how Tibetan medicine interfaces with practices of self-care that patients undertake at an integrative clinic in Ulan-Ude, Buryatia, a Buddhist ethnic minority republic of the Russian Federation. Um, so, 
Mona actually introduced us to this kind of trajectory of Tibetan medicine moving through Russia and into Europe. So it hasn't, it's still in Russia. So this is what I will be talking to you about a little bit today. Um, so Tibetan medicine has been present in Buryatia since as early as the 18th century, but truly flourished in the 19th and early 20th centuries until it was driven underground by the Soviet state's anti-religious activities. Since the 1970s, it has undergone a cautious revival, along with a flurry of scientific and scholarly research into Tibetan medicine's pharmacology. The clinic in question, which I here call East-West Medical Center, was founded in 1989 as the implementation for research into Tibetan medicine conducted at the Regional Institute for Experimental Biology. So they've been doing a lot of research since the 70s into Tibetan medicine, and specifically into translating formulas and compendia. The only biomedical institution in Russia officially endorsed by the Ministry of Health to incorporate Tibetan medicine, alongside other forms of traditional and Eastern medical interventions, East-West fashions itself to be at the forefront of integrative medicine. In Russia's plural, plural therapeutic landscape, biomedical treatments and traditional medical modalities intersect in complex ways with market-based and state health care. They also reflect how the care of aging bodies and chronic conditions textures the topographies of vulnerability that characterize everyday life under post-socialism. And here I explore how disparate forms of care are sutured together in a context where the commercialization of healthcare and the multiplication of discourses on patient self-responsibility excludes many patients who regularly use traditional medicine, and in particular Tibetan medicine. So as new clinics advertising Chinese, Ayurvedic, Tibetan, and other traditional healing modalities proliferate in Russia's urban centers, professionalized traditional medicine promises its users to go beyond treating illness and towards the optimization of health more broadly. But outside of these for-profit medical institutions, Tibetan medicine actually offers a care of last resort when patients fall through the cracks of an increasingly unpredictable mixture of commercial and state medicine that results from Russia's lengthy healthcare reforms. And if you, in case you're wondering, the reform is from um, sort of uh, universal healthcare system to an obligatory insurance system provided by the state. So that's the kind of administrative background of this. Um, so, within this context, integrative medicine is a relatively recent framing which has emerged in Russia's official clinical discourses following the call of the WHO to incorporate local forms of traditional medicine into official biomedical practice. Alternatively aligned with preventative medicine or rehabilitation, integrative medicine in Russia is taking up as a, taken up as a label to describe a medical pluralism that is already relatively mainstream in many Russian medical institutions that rely on such modalities as homeopathy, reflexology, phytotherapy or herbal therapy, um, hirudotherapy, which is leeches, and um, massage as part of a therapeutic interventions they offer. So here I'm interested in exploring the competing understandings of what might count as a truly integrative approach from the perspective of the clinicians and staff, of patients, and of the AMCHI working at the East-West Clinic. Put simply, I suggest that integrative medicine, whatever that might mean, could be productively analyzed from the vantage points of those therapeutic practices it does not recognize. The limits of integrative medicine at East-West are not simply spaces of resistance, boundary-making, or social conflict, but are in fact deeply generative blind spots where the integrativeness of bodies as social actors proliferates beyond, beyond recognizably medical domains. 
a clarification is perhaps required. East-West Medical Center, as appears to be the case for many other integrative medical institutions in Russia, offers a finite and highly regulated range of therapeutic options for a variety of reasons that have nothing to do with medicine per se and have a lot to do with administrative compliance and Russia's healthcare licensing and labor laws. Integrative medicine, insofar as it's, it is taken up by the administration of this medical facility um, and other such clinic, uh, uh, clinics, as a heuristic to represent their practices to themselves, to funding agencies, to the state, to the medical community, and to potential patients, demands constant plans for expansion and multiplication. Thus, the center's public relations staff was constantly preoccupied with increasing the diversity of what they frequently refer to as the clinic's therapeutic arsenal of traditional medicine practices, lest the center would fall behind its constantly multiplying local competitors. But there was another rationale for seeking to expand and multiply therapeutic options. It was a bid on the part of the clinic's administration to try to rein in patients' wild circulation between different medical contexts and their tendency to accumulate therapeutic interventions. And so, in fact, a lot of the doctors um, spoke of patients as kind of collectors, like collectors of treatments. Um, in this apparent arms race for an increasing amount of av available therapies, Tibetan medicine was the clinic's calling card. Its main appeal to patients framed in terms of it being practically le practiced legally, compliant with the state law, and in combination with other therapies as part of a broader therapeutic complex. However, the center's phys physicians and administrators remained somewhat uncertain about how to manage patients' efforts to assemble together different interpretations of Tibetan medicine available to them in Buryatia. So patients can actually also go to a temple or to a private practitioner. Um, sometimes they get an, sort of different private practitioners practice differently. So it's kind of this cornucopia of interpretations of Tibetan medicines there. So patients often undertake treatment with multiple different amchi at the same time, both within the walls of the clinic and outside of them, and regularly circulate between amchi and practitioners of other medical modalities. So let me tell you a little bit about the concept of self-treatment of self-care, which are going to be necessary for you to understand what I'm trying to do in this paper. So a 2008 report by the All Russian Center for the Study of Public Opinion, widely cited in the Russian media, lists that about a third of Russian citizens tend to self-medicate, either due to a lack of access to official medical care or to a lack of trust in official medicine. Another figure often circulating in the media is the reported number of Russian citizens who, are, uh, who use traditional med medical modalities, either, as ex as ex are either exclusively or in combination with bi biomedical treatment. And in 2014, that was about 49% of the population. So self-medication, or samolichenia in Russian, is actually a nebulous term that refers to both the replacement of my biomedical consultation and therapies with self-diagnosis and folk remedies, and to self-medication with either over-the-counter drugs or through obtaining prescription drugs through roundabout or illicit means. So they'll ask their friend who is a doctor to give them a prescription, right? It also entails adjusting drug dosage, stopping treatment early, and other practices that generally get classified as medical non-compliance. Biomedical practitioners and healthcare administrators tend to argue that the epidemic of self-treatment or self-medication in Russia may potentially have disastrous effects, whether for the patient's personal health or for the health of an increasingly antibiotic-resistant body politic. By contrast, various publications that specialize in 
popularizing traditional medicine, and Tibetan medicine falls into that category in Russia, as a source of easily accessible treatments with few side effects, frame these pra practices in the idiom of care rather than medicine. So in Russia, that would be zabota as opposed to lichenia. Okay. So the English term care is perhaps not an ideal translation of the Russian zabota, which conveys a sense of worry about preoccupation with and constant attendance to its object, in addition to the effective overlays of warm regard implied by the English term. In that sense, care in Russian is not quite an activity, but the inability to stop an activity. A subject captured by this kind of care cannot suspend the preoccupation. Official rhetorics on maintaining health in Russia hinge on reframing patients as active inf informed citizens, citizen consumers of health services, capable of cultivating salubrious habits and appetites as part of a healthy lifestyle movement, or abbreviated to ZOZH in Russian, and as a matter of quotidian po politics of properly attending to the self. These health-centric initiatives that hope to reform the nation's lifestyle focus primarily on younger financially secure subjects. So they're targeted towards young professionals, um, young families, children, adolescents, etc. In the sense, healthy lifestyle messages offer an injunction to engage in what anthropologists Rebecca Marsland and Ruth Price have, have called the individualized ethos of care. But the people they don't target are actually seniors, the elderly, and sort of chronic patients that kind of fall outside of that uh, discourse on maintaining health, right? Um, so the older patients with whom I spoke, uh, or have been speaking for over 10 years now of field work in this region, rarely identified with official health-promoting messages. Rather, they reconfigured the concept of healthy lifestyle, linking it to the use and circulation of traditional medicine, and in particular, Tibetan medicine. And in so doing, they also redefined what caring for one's health actually means. Describing the bodily experiences, my interlocutors either provided complex lists of symptoms and medical strategies, or laconically summed up the general state of their health as it is what it is. This apparent dismissal belies the ways in which many older and chronic patients eagerly engage in therapeutic accumulations aimed at maintaining and ameliorating an aging body. After all, for patients, health is always for something, a condition of possibility that allows them to accomplish other goals. Take Katerina, a diabetic in her 60s who also suffers from asthma and peripheral neuropathy. Katerina used a, com a complicated combination of Tibetan medicines, vincemine infusions, massage, and leech therapy to regulate her multiple symptoms, with the goal of maintaining her mobility so that she could keep up with her two grandchildren, with whose care she was entrusted after the death of their parents in a car accident. Katerina, Katerina's therapeutic strategies incorporated the treatment and pharmaceuticals she received at East-West, and she spent about 10 days there a year if her pension allowed, but only as part of a much broader constant project of assembling care across multiple domains of practice. Like other senior pa patients, Katerina was also eager to dispense, um, or an eager dispenser of healthcare advice about different doctors and practitioners, recipes, formulas, medicines, techniques, and lifestyle. In this, an ethic of self-care among Russia's seniors is an orientation to mundane vital economies that hinge on distinctly collective practices, a form of therapeutic collectivity that challenges the equation of health maintenance to individual responsibility and reinscribes re it in this shared embodied, embodied post-socialist condition of social, economic, and bodily precarity. And perhaps the best example of this ethos is a bi-monthly periodical called the Healthy Way of Life newsletter. 
I first became aware of this newsletter during my fieldwork at the clinic of East West. As I talked with patients about their therapeutic strategies, I often asked whether they were engaged in self-medication, which was not the, 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 the question to ask clearly, because they said, no, of course we're not. So almost inevitably, patients denied such practices, emphasizing that they always consulted with a specialist before undertaking any new treatment or starting a new medication. Well, this was a blatant lie. Um, Noticing, noticing that many patients brought this copy of this, this newsletter to read during their downtime between treatments, I became struck with a wealth of medical and therapeutic formulas provided in the newsletter, from remedies um, to daily ills like colds and headaches, to the management of more serious chronic conditions. So it was just sort of this cornucopia of things. Most of these remedies appeared to demand a ve very little, a trip to the market um, and uh, the de a dedication to preparing and consuming consuming various natural medicinal substances. When I asked patients whether they tried um, any of these remedies on themselves, I frequently got enthusiastic and detailed accounts of the kinds of methods they used to manage their bodies, what worked and what didn't, and what they had passed on to others once they had found it efficacious. Quote, I always read the newsletter and always get something out of it. I find something to for myself in every issue. Um, it, it is like a breath of fresh air for me, one patient explained. So reframing the question about self-medication to self-care opened a whole domain of patients' quotidian practices of health management. Patients did not conceptualize these practices as treatment, but as specifically as care. So printed in Moscow in 1992, um, mostly on monochromatic ink on grayish recycled newspaper, the news uh, this newsletter minimal price is 63 rubles, or $1.50, four times the cost, cost of a loaf of bread, about the same price as a pack of cigarettes, and half the price of a bottle of aspirin. With a current, um, current nationwide bimonthly circulation of 2.38 million copies, which is quite high. But one of the most curious aspects of this newsletter is its almost total lack of original editorial content. It, in fact, consists chiefly of letters sent to the editors from all over Russia and from some other Soviet formerly Soviet republics, with personal accounts of how someone's long-term physical or psychological suffering is eventually overcome through the use of traditional medicine. For their part, doctors at East-West were aware of the newsletter and the kinds of discourses that were circulating among patients, um, but they didn't really pay that much attention to their content. They, only, they were only interested in their social effects. So during my conversation with the center administration and practitioners, I was repeatedly told that East-West actually does not need advertisement because of what they call the sundress radio effect, which is to say um, the propensity of local patients, but also more generally Russian publics, to constantly trade medical information, however real or not, right? Um, a recommendation and advice. So the language ideology of the Sundress Radio assumes that information about all things health-related is super-circulatory and that it, its Russian public is a kind of super-conductive milieu. And in that sense, the newsletter is a Sundress, a sundress Radio writ large. So physicians at East-West sometimes reflected on the ways in which this superconductivity, combined with a center integrative approach, made co cooperation between patients and medical practitioners possible in the first place. As one of the physicians on staff put it, here pa patients come in with a concrete plan. They know what they want, and they continue to do it this way. And yet, this concrete plan is only selectively visible, and the 
And the impression of collaborative understanding between physician and patient is actually the product of a distinct set of discursive practices that are not, strictly speaking, medical, uh, a medical matter. A quick ethnographic vignette might help, you, uh, help me illustrate this. So bear with me. There's a lot of quotations here. What are your complaints? Osteochondritis. I don't know what that is. What are your complaints? I stood in the patient's room as Sasha, one of the doctors I shadowed during her work at the clinic, went through the typical series of seemingly unrelated questions. The ritual of the first admittance interview in the clinic was always the same. Doctors went from room to room with a clipboard, introduced themselves, and began a questioning that seemed to dismiss patients' previous diagnosis, obliquely grazing the surfaces of a body framed in terms of a diffuse symptomatology that never quite congealed into illness, or what Mona called the sort of disease category. So there was, there was none of that. What are your complaints? What hurts? Does your liver ever feel heavy? How's your digestion? How's your stool? Do you ever get headaches? How's your blood pressure? How's your sleep? Do you ever get dry mouth? Do you get heartburn? Do you get, get uh, cold feet? Do your limbs feel stiff? Do you cough in the morning? Do you feel like you sweat a lot? Does it hurt here? What does it hurt? On this occasion, the patient was especially unforthcoming. Responding in short yes or no answer, she would ex uh, expand only when Sasha prompted her several times, rephrasing the question. Okay, but can we not do this in bits, Sasha finally asked, frustrated. We're used to this this way, the patient answered. What hurts? Why does it hurt? I don't know. We don't know. We don't know how to complain. We don't know how to, ex to be examined by the doctor anymore. Initially, I, has, I had assumed Sasha's way of questioning her patients to be the specific product of her training in Tibetan medicine. Sasha was one among a small cohort of other doctors who at the time were employed at East-West as general practitioners and who had undertaken an apprenticeship with a well-known local Amchi. Their presence gave East-West a leg up on its other local competitors in that they could boast classically trained Amchi among their staff, and even, uh, even if they never officially recognized them as such but reclassified them as phytotherapists. However, it soon became clear that some, of the, of some form of extensive and for patients often surprising and disconcerting questioning was practiced by most treating physicians in the clinic. The content, uh, the content, uh, content excuse me, of Sasha's particular line, particular line of questions did reflect her amchi sensibility, but the general discursive practice was actually shared across the board. At the clinic, patients were encouraged from day to day to list the minutia of everyday pangs and pains, a narrative of discomfort circulating in a body, of, body that constantly generated new symptoms, nested in certain areas only to transmute later into different spaces and experience, a dry mouth, a morning cough, a stiffness of limbs, without ever per permanently settling in a single medical diagnosis. One patient, especially flabbergasted by the implication of this form of producing knowledge about the body, eventually asked Sasha, wait, should I tell you everything? <laughs> For patients, this diffuse focus had several effects. First, it seemed to encourage them to weave their quotidian forms of care into their accounts of illness and created the sense that they could share with their doctors at the clinic the, strategy they, the strategies they used to manage their health outside of the clinic's walls. The corn silk they took to mitigate the symptoms of a bitter mouth or a year-long struggle with a thyroid problem treated with a recipe from the Healthy Lifestyle newsletter or the Manu 4, formula of Manu 4 um, Tibetan medicine formula they got from another Amchi at the local 
Central Buddhist Temple became incorporated into the narrative of one's complaints. As one patient intimated, doctors here are not like typical doctors. They're gentle. They really care about you. You know, regular doctors barely even look at you. They just ask a question or two and then just write, write. What are they writing in there? Who knows? So doctors at East-West also asked questions, of course, and also wrote, and were equally opaque about what they were writing. Yet for patients, the interaction made doctors potentially complicit in a world suffused with therapeutic efficacies, opening the possibility of a seamless integration of patients' time at the clinic into broader context of daily already integrative care. But in fact, the rationale for the simultaneous extensive questioning and apparent diagnosis avoidance that was so appealing to patients and that had initially suspected had something to do with epistemological cross-pollination between different therapeutic epistemologies um, was, or turned out to be an artifact of administrative pressures. The problem here is that we will we have to fill out forms for the Ministry of Health, um, and we have to fill the forms in advance of when they're due. So in other words, the, by generating these vague symptoms in advance, they were able, able to reasonably, the doctors were able to reasonably predict um, what, how the patients might improve before um, that data was in. So this, is, this was, in fact, behind this practice of asking these vague, vague questions. Um, but, of course, for the Amchi, this was not the case. This, this discursive practice had a polyvalent kind of nature because they were, in fact, generating relevant information um, that helped them treat the patients that they were seeing. However, these conclusions and diagnosis that they were kind of generating through the questioning weren't shared with other physicians at the clinic um, and never made it into official documents that the clinic generated. At most, they would be shared with the patients directly and remain as traces in the medicines and, produ- uh, and procedures they cheap, um, chose to prescribe. Okay, and so in conclusion, it is not my aim to conclude this paper with a suggestion that East-West failed at its integrative vision. By many metrics, including patient self-reports, this particular medical institution is a wild success. Rather, my goal was to explore the sutures and disjunctures that sometimes arise when biomedicine, Tibetan medicine, and other medical modalities are brought together. One suggestion is that such points of contact are not exclusively matters of translating divergent theories of the bodies, pharmacopoeias, ideas about efficacy, and disease etiologies, but also of practical compromises, often meant to speak to several different audiences at once, to address administrative pressures, patients' expectations and strategies, and the epistemic for professional commitments of different practitioners. And second, that patients, at least in Russia, already and have for a long time been integrators of multiple, often radically different therapies. Thank you. Thank you, Tatiana. There was a fascinating narrative of, of how Tibetan medicine is finding its way through, through Russia. Really appreciated it.